Welcome everybody. This is Myth Busting, Jewish Urban Legends and Misunderstood Texts uh, here at Web Yeshiva with me, Rabbi Uri Cohen. And our session is the number 18, uh, which is the third to last in our our uh, uh, series. Um, two weeks from uh, from now is the uh, the last session. But we have seven all new topics uh, for uh, for this session. And uh, I, I hope you'll... Uh, Hope you'll like them. I hope you'll find find something you didn't know before. I know uh, I did. Okay, here's a general urban legend. The mug and David, that six-pointed star, it's an ancient Jewish symbol, right? So it turns out not so much. In fact, even calling it mug and David is, uh, is a relatively late uh, development. Uh, Rabbi Reuven Bolka, uh, whom we've seen before, he passed away in June, he was a congregational rabbi in Ottawa for many years. He formulates it as the misconceptions that the mug and David is a religious symbol, and he wants to argue that it isn't a religious symbol. Uh, well, yes, that's correct. Um, but uh, I thought this article was more interesting, the one uh, by, uh, by Rabbi Bernard Raskus. He was a conservative rabbi. Um, he was the rabbi at the Temple of Aaron Synagogue in St. Paul, Minnesota, for, uh, for 38 years. He wrote a lot of articles. So this article in the newspaper, one of the uh, newspapers that later became the New Jersey Jewish News, uh, is the Magen David universally Jewish? Uh, and he says, if, if you asked, is it a universal, it's, it's a universal Jewish symbol now, but prior to the 20th century, uh, no. So uh, he refers to this book by uh, Rabbi Gunther Plout, um, who was a uh, reform rabbi in Toronto. He wrote a little book about uh, the Magen David, and uh, he points out that uh, not that long ago in Jewish history, 1879, it was proposed that the new synagogue in St. Petersburg be decorated with the Magen David. The poet and journalist uh, Yudwamid Gordon uh, strongly protested. It's a heathenish symbol, meaning it's, it's not associated with the Jews per se. And uh, as late as 1917, um, French rabbis objected to burying the those Jews who had uh, been killed in World War I uh, objected to burying them under the, uh, the Jewish star, or rather what we call the Jewish star. They said, that's not a Jewish star. You should bury them under the Ten Commandments. Um, and um, so skipping a little bit, he points out that uh, it's, you find it in a bunch of cultures uh, through, uh, through the ages. Um, the uh, astrologers used it, um, Christians, uh, Muslims, uh, these days, you find it on the back of the $1 bill uh, in the United States, um, obviously showing the uh, influence of the Jews, right? Uh, uh, but not really. And it's also the basic shape of the, uh, the sheriff's badge uh, in, uh, in America. But what I thought, what, what's not so well known um, is that it used to be called the Seal of Solomon, because it was associated with Kabbalah, and uh, which is sometimes known as uh, as Chachma, in like wisdom in the like ultimate sense, and people associate uh, Shlomo with uh, uh, with Chachma. There's an article on the subject uh, about the history of the Magen David by Professor Gershom Shalom, um, and uh, which he be, he does. It's not a um, it's not a highly uh, footnoted article, but he does go through uh, uh, Jewish history. Uh, and he says, basically, the first time that somebody used it in a Jewish context and called it Magen David was the beginning of the 14th century, the 1300s, which is more than a couple hundred years ago, but it's hardly 
the time of Tanakh, or even the time of the uh, of the Gemara, or the time of the uh, of the Gaonim. Uh, the phrase Magen David that goes back to uh, to Tanakh. No, sorry, uh, it goes back to uh, uh, not to Tanakh. It's it's me- sorry the the bracha on the Haftorah. One of the brachot on the Haftorah ends Magen David, but that's that doesn't mean it goes back to Tanakh. The idea of a shield of David. Okay, Hashem is the the shield of uh, of David, but whether. Uh, it wasn't associated with the star. That phrase, Magin David, was not associated uh, uh, with the star until the uh, the 14th century. He points out that uh, that the the first uh, known uh, flag to have a Magin David was uh, the flag the flag of the Jewish community of Prague, 1716. Uh, and uh, when you go visit Prague and you go to the Alt Neuschule. Uh, which is the the oldest one? Um, then you see that they uh, they have it they have it on their uh, I think it's on their wall. No, they, I'm sorry. They they have the flag or or a duplicate of the flag hanging up there, which seems weird to us because we are used to blue star uh, on a white background, the flag of the state of Israel. But they had uh, it wasn't their fault. They came before the state of Israel. A, a yellow star on a, on a red background. Okay, but that. It wasn't the symbol of Judaism. It was the symbol of the Jews of Prague. Okay. Um, the Muggen David did not become considered a symbol of the Jews until the Zionists. Um, and it's most, most famous, you know, well, with the, with the flag. But before that, it was, uh, it was used on the masthead of, of Herzl's uh, journal. Uh, it didn't officially become uh, uh, the flag until uh, 1933, and after which point of it was the uh, on the banner of the Jewish Brigade of uh, of, uh, of England uh, in in World War II. Um, before that, the Nazis used it as a, a sign of shame. And uh, Rabbi Raskus quotes here um, a Jewish newspaper editor saying, "No, wear the yellow badge with pride, like it's the shield of uh, of King David." Um, but basically, what it comes down to is Rabbi Raskus uh, uh, concludes is if millions of Jews wear the Magen David to identify their Jewishness, and if the state of Israel uses it as uh, on the flag, uh, so then that it's become Jewish. But really, uh, historically, um, that's, a, uh, that's a very recent very recent phenomenon. Just because you find it on the, uh, um, on the flag of the Jewish community of Prague a couple hundred years ago does not mean it was associated with Jews in general. That was a Prague thing. Um, there's more uh, on the subject in, in this book that I'm, I'm holding up um, by Rav Ari Shvat. It's called Laharim Ed Hadegel, and it's a uh, source book that uh, goes through uh, halacha and history about the, uh, the flag of, uh, of the state of Israel. So, and he has a little section that pulls together a lot of, uh, of this stuff. Um, okay, uh, go, going to... Uh, move ahead, and then we'll come back just because of, of spacing issues. Uh, frauds, fakes, and forgeries. Remember last time we talked about uh, uh, under people thought the darndest things that that Jews um, through the Middle Ages uh, believed that the Ten Lost Tribes are are still out there. They're just behind the the Sambat Yon River. Well, in the year 883 Common Era, during the time of the Geonim. Um, somebody showed up and he said to a Jewish community in Karawan, present-day Tunisia, and he said, my name is Eldad. I'm from the Ten Lost Tribes. And, uh, and 
This was major news, and he was really good at his fraud. He was a, a very uh, well, uh, well-rehearsed uh, con man. Um, he told a very extensive story about, uh, about what the Sambation is like, and, and really, there's only four tribes who live where he lives, but he's traveled extensively, uh, and, uh, and he, he only speaks Hebrew, which was a super radical thing because Jews through, uh, through the centuries have mostly spoken the language of their local country. Uh, but he's from he's from the the Jews who have remained separate. Wow, wouldn't that be amazing? Instead of just telling stories about somebody else, he's like, here I am. I'm uh, I'm one of them. So he called himself Eldad Hadani, Eldad from the tribe of Don. Uh, so it's easy for us to um, you know be amused by this now. But how would you how would you have challenged his claim back then? Based on what? Like everybody had heard the stories. Uh, there was no way to uh, to verify it, and he was good enough at his um, at his story that only here and there uh, through the Middle Ages did uh, did rabbis say, you know what, I don't buy his story. I think uh, I think he was a fraud. So uh, at the time, uh, this is from an article by the same rabbi we we saw last time from the uh, Chabad website, Rabbi Yehuda Sherpin. Um, uh, he has. This is not his whole article, but he has a whole section of, uh, of his three articles uh, about the Ten Tribes, a whole section about Eldad. So he translates into English part of the, the question that they sent to the leader of uh, world Jewry at the time, Rabbi Tzemach Gaon. He was in Sura. There was still a Babylonian uh, community. Uh, remember, this is the uh, 800s. And, and they, they, they described that this guy only knows Hebrew and um, and we, we asked him like days later for what the word is, and he was consistent. He stuck to his, uh, to his story, and he explained that they have a tradition that's where they don't – they have the Gemara, but not exactly. They have traditions that go back to Harsinai. So they, everything that they quote, they don't say this Rabbi Kiva said or Rabbi Yochanan said. They said Rabbi Yoshua said – sorry, Rabbi Yoshua. Yehoshua, as in Yoshua the one who succeeded Moshe. Yoshua got this from Moshe, who got it from God. Like, wow, this guy's like, he's representing a tradition that's even older than the one that, that we have. And he retold the stories about the, the stories that they knew already about the, uh, the Sambation, and he elaborated on them. Uh, and um, skipping a little bit, uh, and they sent a question to, to the, uh, the Hador, Rabbi Tzemach Gaon, who answered, um, actually, a lot of his tale fits with the tradition, and uh, and it's true there are some inaccuracies, like they caught him in a few uh, errors. But it must be because he's been traveling around, and you know he forgets things. So we'll assume that he's uh, that he's telling the truth. So in retrospect, uh, it was only really starting in in the 1800s, 19th century, that uh, with the rise of Wissenschaft des Judentums, the the quote unquote the science. Of, uh, of Judaism, meaning academic study of Judaism, that historians started looking into Eldad and what we have from him. Uh, the problem is most of the texts that we have, either about him or supposedly from him, were put together and edited hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of years later. So it's, it's, it's really hard to figure out uh, what the originals were. But in the book, this was mentioned, we mentioned this last time, uh, by uh, Dr. Tzvi Bendor uh, uh, Benite. He's a professor in uh, 
Department of History and Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at New York University, and he, he coordinates the faculty hiring at their campuses in Abu Dhabi and Shanghai. So he wrote what is currently the book on the Ten Lost Tribes, uh, Oxford University Press. So in, in, the, uh, in his chapter on uh, Eldad and other tricksters, uh, he says this encounter produced three important documents. The first is an epistle, a letter composed by Eldad telling of his adventures. That, that is now called Safer Eldad. You could find it if you want. The second is a query, what we just said, uh, about that they sent to the highest legal authority at the time, Rav Tzemach uh, Gaon. Uh, and the third, which we haven't gotten to yet, is a study of certain rituals described by Eldad and written up by the Jews of Kirawan where he was uh, visiting, um, which which we'll, we'll see shortly, is mostly about Shechita. It's like, these are the, our version of Hilchot Shechita. So rabbis through the Middle Ages kept referring back to this, like, wow, this is like an alternate tradition of how to slaughter uh, an animal. Um, Dr. Uh, uh, Bendor Benite points out that what was unusual about Eldad was, as opposed to everybody who had told stories about the Tenwas tribes and the Sampation uh, until then, Eldad was pretending to be one of them pretending to have traveled among them. So he tells a story with cannibals and, and getting, getting captured and all exciting stuff. And he weaves it in to, together with Midrashim and stuff that the Jews would, would have heard of. Um, so uh, basically it wasn't until a few years ago that, uh, that there was a linguist who figured out based on what was reported of all the Hebrew of Eldad, his language, his syntax and pronunciations, uh, he must have belonged to a community of Arabic-speaking Jews from Southern Arabia. He came from Yemen. Okay, well, we know this now more than a thousand years later. I'm not sure who it helped uh, besides the, the scholars, but the uh, point is his con, his fraud was so good that he was not exposed uh, as an out-and-out -out fraud during his lifetime, uh, as, let's say, we saw with the Bassam and Rosh. Uh, nor was he exposed 50 years later, as we saw with the Sefer Eshkol. No, hundreds and hundreds of years later, there were still people who, uh, who thought, like, this is, uh, wow, this was, an, uh, what, what, what great luck uh, that, uh, that he was able to, uh, to escape from the Sambation and make it to us. Uh, let me show you a couple of examples of Rishonim who, uh, uh, who saw through uh, Eldah, not at the time, unfortunately, but uh, Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra is one of the earlier uh, medieval commentaries, but he's still hundreds of years after after Eldad. So in his commentary on um, near the beginning of Shemot on the uh, about the story of Moshe, uh, Ibn Ezra says there are a lot of books that claim to be telling the story, the real story, the full story of Moshe Rabbeinu. Al Tamin, don't believe these stories. Uh, sometimes you hear them called uh, Sefer Hayashar. There's a lot of books called Sefer Hayashar. One of the books called Sefer Hayashar is elaborating on, tells about how Moshe became the king of Ethiopia. This in between when he fled from Egypt as a young man and when he got to uh, uh, to Midian uh, as uh, when he when he was 80. All sorts of like, what what happened? Moshe Moshe lived a long time. What did he do in between leaving Egypt and getting to it to Midian? Because this grew up. He killed a man in, uh, in Egypt, and he fled. And then he got to Midian, it sounds like. He married Sipora, and God spoke with him, and he was 80. So what happened in between? So people have told all these stories. Klal Omar Lachal. Ibn Ezra says, I'm going to tell you the general rule. 
any book, any book, any story that was not written by a prophet or or sages with uh, with through the oral tradition. It's just a book. You can't rely on um, uh, on on the story. And especially since a lot of these stories include stuff that's uh, uh, that's really not uh, not correct. I mean, stuff that that doesn't make any sense. The kachas rubavel. Sefer's Rebavo is another one of these books. Sefer Eldan Adani, etc. Even though Eldan Adani was not about Moshe, it was about the descendant of, uh, of, uh, of Moshe. But still, the Ibn Ezra is saying, uh, don't, uh, don't rely on that. Just need to check something. Eldan Adani, not story, but the halakha that he told people. Which you can find, um, it's uh, uh, you can find it actually on in uh, open library uh, online uh, old texts in the in the book. There's a book uh, edited by uh, Dr. Max Schlesinger. Uh, he died in 1944. He uh, was a lot of things, but uh, he was an editor of the Encyclopedia, a librarian and instructor at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, and eventually vice chancellor at Hebrew U in uh, in Jerusalem. So he put together this book called The Ritual of Eldad Adani, reconstructed and edited from manuscripts and he's a fragment, and it includes this long, uh, basically it's a bunch of the laws of Shechita, which are much, much, much stricter than what appears in Masechet Kulin, the Mishnah and the Gemara and uh, all of the uh, later halachic commentaries. So some Rishonim um, bring up this book and they say it's it's wrong. It doesn't fit with our tradition. And for so for example, let's look at Tosfot. Uh, Tosfot says this uh, uh, twice. Uh, I'm just showing you uh, one of them. Uh, Tosfot in Zvachim Daflam and Aleph, where it says uh, one example. Uh, it says in the, uh, I think it's the Mishnah, Mishnah Gemara, Shchita Kshira Benashim. A woman is allowed to do Shchita. If a woman knows what she's doing and she does the uh, uh, slaughter on the animal, fine. There's no, this is not one of these examples where there's a, there's a separate obligation on men and women. No, women and men are the same halacha for uh, uh in general. And so it's clear from the Gemara that a woman is allowed to be a Shochetet. Um, even to begin with, uh, even ideally. So Tosfot right comments, Mikan, we see from here, Tshuva, that's a response, that's a rebuttal. I'll explain shortly why Eldad's book was called Hilchot Eretz Israel. Why would it be called Hilchot Eretz Israel? He didn't come from Eretz Israel. He came from on the Samba. Anyway, it, one of the many, many uh, strict laws of Shechita in in Eldad's book is that women are not allowed to do shechita because they're, I don't know how you would even uh, translate this, they're, they're light-minded, they're stupid. Uh, in this course, uh, a number of sessions ago, we addressed the phrase from the Gemara, uh, in that context, it means that women give into pressure more easily than men which you could debate, but it doesn't mean what it later came to mean in uh, evil times. If men wanted to say that women were dumb, they would misquote this Gemara. But in any case, 
If you ever hear this phrase, oh, women can't be uh, shochtim, that, that's the opposite of what it says in the Gemara. This is from Hilchot Yisrael, and Tosef says it's clearly incorrect. It contradicts the, the, the Gemara. And Tosef says, and here's another couple of examples from there, that uh, if somebody did chita and not say the bracha, or if somebody did shechita without wearing any clothes, b'dyev the shechita is no good. The animal is not kosher. These are, these are not correct. Uh, these are made up. Toso concludes, it appears, shem chumro ba'alma. These are just stringencies. Shaya omer, oto chacham, shekatav hilchad ar Yisrael. Whichever one guy, whichever one uh, knowledgeable guy wrote hilchad ar Yisrael, he made them up. It's his personal opinion. It doesn't fit with our tradition, and you don't have to follow it. It's not on the list of uh, different opinions within the tradition. It's outside of the tradition. So since I just mentioned one other thing before we move on, why would it be called, why would the uh, summary of strict opinions on Hilchot Shechita from El Taradani, why would it be called So let's uh, uh, let's pick up. I apologize for the uh, technical uh, problems. Um, just one last thing before we move on. Um, here in source number five, Dr. Schlesinger explains why uh, Eldad's book uh, would have been referred to as Hilchot Eretz Israel. He says basically uh, because each because it starts with Amar Yoshua Hilchot Amar Yoshua. So these are the laws of what Yoshua said. Hilchot Aleph Yud. Somebody abbreviated it Aleph Yud, and Aleph Yud is more scant than Eretz Yisrael. So people started calling it Hilchot Eretz Yisrael because they didn't know. I mean, by the time we got to Tosfot, Tosfot is already hundreds of years, a few hundred years uh, afterwards. Anyway, um, so uh, we're done with this topic, uh, and we, we will now move on to more fun topic, factitious fiction. Um, you probably heard of the uh, of the movie the uh, the Frisco Kid, uh, a Western comedy from 1979, which is uh, known among Jews. Uh, it tends not to be listed uh, in the top movies made by either Gene Wilder or or Harrison Ford. Although there is fanfic, uh, if you look at archive uh, of our own, um, let's uh, let's look at one scene from uh, from the movie. Uh, optimized promotion and, and video. I set it up with the subtitles. Uh, that should uh, that should work. Okay. I don't ride today. What are you talking about? Today is Saturday. So? I don't ride on Saturday. Well, I know that, but don't tell me you ain't gonna ride today. I ain't gonna ride today. I asked you not to tell me that. That's what I'm telling you. But this ain't no ordinary Saturday. Why is this Saturday different from all other Saturday? Because this Saturday, there's a hanging posse chasing us. I promise you, right now, they're doubling back to that stream. I don't ride on Saturday. Jesus, you give me the pea doodles. There ain't no Jews in that posse, you know. 
They'd as soon string you up on Saturday as any other day. They don't give a shit for your holidays, don't you know that? God damn it if I'm gonna walk! I've asked you not to say that. You stupid, ignorant son of a bitch! I ain't waiting around for that posse to find us. I'm leaving. Who's asking you to stay? Goodbye. is because Harrison Ford's character has robbed a bank. I'm going to show you something. Look over there. One more minute to you know go. What that is? Yes? Well... And the sunsets. Know what you are? You're real Michiguna. 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 Now coming. Here's a dramatic part. Damn you. Come on, coming. Now! Not yet! Now! Not yet! Now! Longest day of my life, says the uh, non-Jewish bank robber. Okay, so we see from this that even to save your life, you're not allowed to travel on Shabbat. That is, until the sun sets, and then you're allowed to travel. So, as a bunch of people have pointed out, not just on the TV Tropes website, but on this discussion of film boards, somebody named, called himself Pilopod, uh, pointed out that aside from, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of things that the movie gets wrong uh, relatively minor things, as in the rabbi wears a talus, but he's not married. And uh, uh, and the rabbi says, uh, after the cowboy shoots the fish, if you had been here yesterday, we would have had fried chicken. Aha, because because he apparently has never heard of uh, the laws of Shita. But uh, look at numbers two, three, and five here. Um, the rabbi doesn't know that Shabbat ends when the stars are out. He thinks that it ends at sunset. No, that's when Shabbat starts on Friday night. And he thinks that you're not allowed to ride on Shabbat, but it's okay to lead a horse and to travel long distances by foot. So, yes, I know that they introduced the, the, the rabbi at the beginning of the movie as he came in uh, out of 88 uh, members of his yeshiva class. He came in a close 87. But still, come on. That something we have to do with the learning Gemara. And it's not doesn't have to do with basic 
laws of Shabbat. But most significantly is, as formulated here in number five, the movie completely ignores the basic concept of pikuach nefesh, that you're not only permitted, you're required to violate all halakhot, except for the big three, to save a life. Killing in self-defense, which comes later, and the rabbi refuses to do it. But that's allowed, as would be riding a horse on Shabbat to escape the prophecy is trying to kill you, or even letting the Torah be destroyed instead of the person. It also comes later. So, I, you know, if you look in the, the credits at the end of the movie, it lists as a, as a technical advisors two rabbis. Okay, so they were reform rabbis. Um, but still, is. I think it's much more likely that the... Um, the, uh, the filmmakers had their ideas in mind of, of what Judaism is, and then they asked the rabbis for things like how to pronounce uh, Yiddish words. Um, but uh, this is, uh, it's a fun movie, but it's kind of grating the more, uh, the more halacha uh, you know. Okay, but at least, at least this is, makes you, the movie in general makes you feel good as opposed to what we talked about last time with uh, Laugh of the Just. Moving right along, street Torah, where people think there's only one way of doing things uh, in the law, and it turns out that there's more than one. People think that when uh, there's a Shabbat, uh, lighting Shabbat candles, you need to have one for each family member. And that is a more standard custom now than the, uh, the one that, that um, used to be the standard of lighting two, um, one for... Um, Shamor, one for Zahor. There are two extensive articles on this topic in the current issue of Takira, the Flatbush Torah Journal, and they're by uh, researchers whom we've seen a number of times before, Rabbi Ari Zbitovsky, we've seen lots of things from him, as well as uh, uh, Rabbi Tzvi Rome. Two articles on the same subject in the same journal. Uh, so, so you might say, well, aren't they basically saying the same thing? They do, there is overlap, but each article has original ideas. Between the two articles, they cover over 30 pages, and there's a, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, I just want to share with you little bits and pieces. I mean, I put two pages worth here, but even though I'm just going to skip around it, people think that this is their family custom going back generation. We know that that is not possible. How do you know? Because rabbis have written stuff about all the laws of Shabbat, including uh, near Shabbat, for hundreds and hundreds of years. The first time that this custom is described as something other than something that uh, one person does, but like as a minhag, is not found until the late 19th, early 20th century, which is a pretty good indication that nobody was doing it beforehand. Rabbi Zabotovsky uh, uh, points out, not only does the, uh, did people not do it beforehand, but it also was not realistic. People would not have done it for most of history. Why? So the most prosaic reason is financial. Uh, lighting extra candles, if you're poor, it's not, uh, not a good way to use your, uh, your money. And uh, we see from when people discuss the question of if a woman uh, uh, misses a week of, of lighting a Shabbat candle, so she's supposed to um, add an extra candle from then on, but you see the sources talk about what if she can't afford that? Or one extra candle every week? Yes, that's correct because candles did not used to be so cheap, and people did not used to have as much money as, as we have now. Rabbi Rohn adds to this point in his parallel article, in the 1800s, there were advances in candle-making technology that made candles much more affordable, as in candle molding machines, 
uh, the discovery of, of paraffin, which they didn't have before, much less costly to produce. Rabbi Zivotofsky makes another suggestion as to why this custom would not have existed, uh, would not have been common anyway, before the, um, the 20th century, and that is, it's unfathomable to the modern ear, but there was this rate of child mortality. In the mid-19th century Europe, rates of between a quarter and a third of all children did not reach adulthood. So, in effect, there was not, not a house in which multiple children did not live past their first birthday, and certainly not to adulthood. In that culture, it's highly unlikely that a woman would establish a practice of lighting an extra light for each newborn with the knowledge that a bunch of them would not survive, and then she would have for the rest of her life a constant reminder of all of her uh, dead children. Uh, not realistic that that would be very anachronistic to have a light. We light. So the idea of lighting every family member is a nice one. We're not putting it down, but it's anachronistic to assume that if we're doing it now, our ancestors uh, uh, did it uh, for, for most of, uh, of Jewish history. Um, it's a relatively recent custom. Uh, Rabbi Roan, uh, after going through, after explaining why the theory that people give to explain this custom, oh, because it's woman must have missed uh, Shabbat candles during the week that she gave birth, and then she was in the hospital, so she wasn't able to light. He explains why that would not, that, that would not explain the custom. Rabbi Rowan suggests that uh, evidence points to the custom of lighting a candle for every family member for Shabbat spread from the earlier common custom through the Middle Ages to light candles for Yom Kippur representing each member of the family. And he had uh, several pages on, on this topic. That was never an obligation. And it was done in shul uh, to light a candle for each person representing their neshama, their soul. And if it, and rabbis had to caution, if the candle goes out, you're not allowed to relight it on Yom Kippur. Of course, you're not allowed to light a candle on Yom Kippur. Uh, the is severe on Shabbat, right? But people were very... Uh, superstitious about it. It's like, oh no, oh no, if my candle went out, it means I'm going to die this year. I better, I better find the non-Jew and they have to light it. People took that custom very seriously. But over the years, eventually, people started lighting the Yom candles at home in the same place the Shabbat candles were lit. And they started doing it with a bracha. That's a custom. It's not an obligation the way that Shabbat candles are, but because they're done in the same place, with the bracha, so people assume it's basically the same idea. Like for your kippur, it's parallel to wedding on Shabbat, and therefore it was not a big deal for a custom migrating from one area, namely Yom Kippur, to uh, to uh, Shabbat. He g- goes on for a bunch of pages uh, about that, and uh, uh, Rabbi Ron c- uh, concludes um, the custom caught on of lighting uh, one for every family member. It spread because it resonated with people. It was inexpensive. It has become the most dominant candlelighting custom, despite the fact that, unlike Yom Kippur, there's no special symbolism for why you should buy a candle for every member of the family. But it's a nice custom that is relatively recent, and if you want to do it, that's fine. Just don't tell anybody that that's what you have to do, because most of our ancestors would have never heard of such a thing. Moving right along, moving back in history. People thought the darndest things. Have you heard this one? If a Nida looks at a mirror, if a menstruating woman looks at a mirror, then blood red drops appear. We're going to see shortly from Bon quotes this in his commentary on the Torah, but he did not make it up. He's quoting the philosophers and the doctors. Who made it up? Aristotle. Yeah, a long, long time ago. Aristotle died in 322 before the Common Era. Aristotle has 
but simple paragraphs, I only brought one of them here, um, in his treatise on dreams about how we know that uh, that a menstruating woman looks at a, at a mirror, it, uh, it, uh, it creates these, uh, these red dots uh, and spots, and, and Aristotle made up some scientific theory to explain it. And for thousands of years after Aristotle, people repeated this because until, to be honest, until the 19th century, scientific experiment, experimentation was not really uh, a thing. Uh, it was not, uh, only gradually in the last few hundred years to become something where people say, really, is that true? Well, let's go test it. People didn't test it. They just repeated what, uh, what the doctors said. So the Ramban in two places in his commentary in the Torah, one in the uh, partial Akhremot, where it says a man is not allowed to have sex with a menstruating woman. Ramban says not only is it prohibited, but the doctors say that menstruation is a type of poison. So that would be an extra reason besides Hashem saying not to do it. That would be an extra reason to avoid uh, having sex with uh, with menstruating women. In this week's parsha, however, the Ramban brings uh, doesn't say the mirror thing, but he adds a Jewish source. This is what makes it interesting. So if it were just Aristotle, we would say, okay, so. Whatever. I mean, there's no reason why we should uh, follow uh, Aristotle's ideas. Ramban is part of where Rachel says to Lavan, sorry, I can't get up. It's that time of the month when we know, the readers know that she's hiding the, uh, the trophim. She uses that as an excuse um, to not get up. So, so some commentaries say, because Rachel, we know she had trouble having children, maybe she had uh, difficult uh, menstruation as well. And everybody knew that uh, with Rachel. No, but Rabban says, no, no, no. This has to do with what the philosophers, here's his philosophers on paper. He said the doctors, but remember, they used to be basically the same people. Uh, what they tell us that uh, that menstruation is a type of, 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 of poison. And, um, and so women would sit in the tent, uh, in a separate tent by themselves, and nobody would come in. And that's why Lavan didn't go in. And he says it, and here's where it gets interesting. After all, according to Brayta Shalmasech Nida, Brayta is usually a text written by the Tanah. Uh, it says in the Brayta of Masech Nida that you're not allowed to say hello to Anida. Even when she speaks, her, her speech is impure. You're not allowed to walk where Anida has walked uh, because the, the ground becomes impure. Now, if this sounds weird, that's because none of this appears in the Gemara and Nida. None of it appears in all the halacha books of uh, of What is bright to the Mitzvah and Nida anyway? We'll get to that shortly. The Ravon concludes. So, therefore, Rachel used this belief that everybody knew, and the Ravon says everybody still knows. So, she said to Lavan, I'm menstruating, so therefore, you can't come into the tent at all. Because then you'll have to step, you'll have to walk where I've walked. And that's why Lavan didn't answer anything to the Rachel because nobody wanted to even speak with a menstruating woman. Aha! So the Rabban uses that which the doctors from Aristotle on, uh, and, and apparently whoever wrote them of Mesechah, they repeated, and he tries to use that to explain via the Torah. If you look in the standard edition of the Rabban, that's this one, um, Parisha Ramban Al Torah, uh, two volumes published by Mosada Rav Cook, edited by uh, Rabbi Charles Chevelle, 
who was a rabbi first in Louisville, Kentucky, and then in Edgemere of Long Island. Um, he edited a bunch of Rishonim uh, for Mozart of Cook, most, um, he's most famous for this one. In his footnote, on that, on that Ramban, he quotes from a rabbi uh, from the, uh, the late 1800s uh, who edited a bunch of Rishonim, uh, well, edited, ed- wrote a lot of Torah articles and especially edited the Raviyah. This is Rav Avigdor Aptitzer. The uh, Rabbi Shabbat quote him as saying as follows. This quote, supposed Brita, has very suspicious stuff in it. It's difficult to believe that this Brita, so-called Brita, was written by a rabbi with a traditional Misora. It doesn't fit. It, it's more likely that it is Pasul, meaning it was written by a heretic. If the person who wrote it was not an actual Karaite, he was certainly from some non-Pharisaic a group because the way that Nida is presented in Bright of the Nida does not overlap. It doesn't fit with the laws of Nida. The laws of Nida, have, uh, the husband and the wife are supposed to separate so they don't have uh, sex together. But there's no tumma. There's no, there's no impurity. Uh, stuff that the uh, menstruating woman touches is not impure. There's no problem of anybody. Uh, uh, no, of any issue of touch. The point is it's so foreign that uh, Rav Shavell, quoting Rav Optimator, says, we should feel bad about the fact that, that a bunch of Rishonim were tricked by this book. Maybe we should have put this in the frauds and forgeries. We're tricked into thinking that this, is, that this book has legitimate opinions. This bright Masechanita, which was uh, um, circulating in the Middle Ages, but it didn't, uh, it didn't get actually published until the, uh, uh, the late 1800s. But like, it's not part of, of mainstream rabbinic tradition. So if you want to say there are folk customs, um, like my uh, my uncle, uh, Professor Shia Cohen, wrote, wrote uh, an article called Purity and Piety, Separation of Menstruants from the Sancta, referring to the custom that uh, in some places that has been for, for uh, Nida not to go to shul, or to, to not look at the Sefer Torah, or it points out that Ramah, uh, when he quotes this, says this is not correct, like this was a folk belief. So it's not it's not that it's based on Brachta the Masechani. It's based on the um, the ancient uh, superstition that there's something uh, poisonous about uh, about menstruation. The one who spells this out and pulls together all the opinions about what's wrong with Brachta the Masechani is the late Ravavadi Yosef. In the tshuva that I quoted here in source number number five, he quotes not only Rav Shavel, but a bunch of other rabbis saying. Uh, it's not part of our tradition. It is not okay to follow it. We have to follow the rabbinic tradition, just like we said uh, with Eldar Adani. He brought in super strict opinions about Shechita. We reject them. And this bright of Nida brought in uh, super strict opinions about, uh, about Nida. We reject those as well. Moving right along. Speaking of the Ramban, Ramban has a great interpretation of a what would seem to be a very problematic pasuk in Parsha Kitetse, where it says, you may not lend money with interest, nechech, and tarbit, to your brother, your fellow Jew, but but you can and should lend money to non-Jews with, with interest. So the question is, wait, I don't understand, especially in light of uh, I, I'm paraphrasing from uh, the commentaries on this. In light of what we find in the Gemara, that you're not allowed to steal from a non-Jew, 
You're not allowed to cheat a non-Jew. Why? Why should you be allowed to uh, to charge interest to a non-Jew if there's something fundamentally wrong with it? The way that there's something fund- fundamentally wrong with stealing. That's the uh, that's the the basic question. Bob Rinell has four answers to this, to this question. We're not going to go through it, but the 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 answer that uh, where is it? Starting here at the bottom, his answer number four is an elaboration of the Ramban. The Ramban in source number three explains this as follows. After he says this is different from, uh, you have to contrast this with stealing. You're not allowed to steal from a non-Jew. And non-Jews at the time of not the time of the Gemara were pagans. They were immoral people, and you still were not allowed to steal from them. The Ramban explains that interest. When both parties, the one who is charging interest and the one who is agreeing to pay interest, when they are both consenting, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with with charging interest. There's no problem of morality with interest at all. Barbano elaborates on this point, and he says, interest is basically saying, if you 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 want to use my money for a certain amount of time, I I don't have access to my money, so you need to pay me something to make up for... uh, for my loss, for the opportunity cost. That's why uh, most of society today, and, and really through, uh, through a lot of human history, interest is not a problem, certainly from an economic perspective. It's not It's not a moral issue. So if it's not, that's what you're allowed to charge interest to non-Jews, because you're supposed to treat non-Jews in a moral, decent way. But charging interest has nothing to do with that. Well, in that case, well, then why are you not allowed to charge interest to a Jew? Ah, so the Ramban says... The answer is given in the Torah itself. And the Torah itself, when it formulates it, way back here in source number one, it introduces it by saying, do not charge interest to your brother. The same way that in Parsha Kadoshim, with uh, several psukim leading up to uh, love your neighbor as yourself, all lots of benad mochaveru interpersonal mitzvot, it doesn't say Jews there. It means Jews. But every one of them uses the, ter- the term Amito, your fellow Jew. Re'echa, your neighbor. Amecha, your nation. Achicha, your brother. Bnei Amecha, you are not allowed to gossip. Say Lashonara about the people of your nation. Do not, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, do not, do not steal. Well, stealing is, uh, do, do not, uh, uh, do not hate your brother in your heart. So, not doing anything to, 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 uh, to my brother. Yeah, but it's your brother. The Ramban is saying, The only reason why we're not allowed to charge interest for our fellow Jews is because we're supposed to view our fellow Jews as brothers, as siblings, as family, for which we have a higher standard of brotherhood and chesed. Uh, and uh, that's why the Ramban says, that's why the Torah goes on to say, that there's a bracha if you follow this, going back up to uh, um, to the beginning. It says in the Torah, so that God will bless you. And the Rabban points out that whenever there are mitzvot in the Torah, don't do that because it's immoral, like don't steal. It never gives a bracha. It never says that there's a blessing if you follow it. Because it's just being being decent. You don't get it, you don't get blessed for being a decent person. You get blessed for going above and beyond basic human standards. And what's going above and beyond? Treating fellow Jews like they are your family, as is elaborated on by uh, by Rabbi Gil's student here in, in uh, interview in uh, source number number five. Um, 
You have to treat everyone fairly. But everyone has to take care of themselves. Uh, the, the Torah does not, going back a little further, the Torah does not demand that you put yourself at a disadvantage because you follow Halakha and they don't. That, in other words, charging interest, everybody else charges interest, everybody else follows whatever is, is uh, considered standard financially, you can follow that too. But, but within your community, you have to treat each other's family. Just like if you were running a store, you would give a better discount to your brother than to some stranger off the street. Torah is saying the Jewish people are one big family. So, so too, that, that's in general. And specifically here, there's nothing wrong with charging interest. It's standard business practices and opportunity cost of money. But when you're dealing with family, you're expected to give them an interest-free loan. Saying to your brother, yeah, you know, I can give you money, but let's talk about how, uh, about how much interest I'm going to charge you. That shows there's a major problem with the relationship. So the Torah says, treat all Jews like your like your family, for whom you have higher standards. So this explains, this interpretation of the Rambam not only explains the discrepancy between how we're supposed to treat Jews and non-Jews for charging interest, but also might very well explain, back in source number two, the other mitzvah that, that we're expected to do towards Jews and not to non-Jews. You can make an excellent case that they all fit into this category as well. So I like that approach. Let's go on to the, uh, uh, the last one. Stranger than fiction. Also, the sixth parsha. Some use Targum Yonatan to answer the question of who is the mom in the contemporary fertility uh, issue of egg donation and surrogacy. Uh, briefly, what are we talking about? Either there's a, a a woman who can't have can't carry a baby to term, but she has eggs, uh, so uh, she hires a surrogate to carry to term the embryo of, let's say, for the argument, uh, the first woman's uh, egg combined with her husband's sperm is an embryo, so they hire a surrogate to carry the baby to term, and the surrogate gives birth and hands, supposed to, supposed to hand the baby to, uh, to the couple. Or, alternatively, um, one woman donates an egg to another woman, the second woman gives birth, but the egg, which has been donated to her, the egg the genetic material is all from this other woman. The question is, who is the mom? Because until now, the uh, biological mother, well, it was the same person. And in most cases, it still is. The person whose egg the embryo is from is, is combined, you know, embryo combined sperm and the egg. The woman of the egg and the woman who, who was uh, a gestation of Pregnancy and childbirth, they have the same person. Uh, but once you separate them, then the question is, who is the real mom? With all sorts of ramifications, not only for um, uh, in the courts, in general courts talk about like who, uh, who, who can get the baby if the surrogate changes her mind, but uh, questions like, what if, for whatever reason, the, the two moms are two different religions? Is the baby, uh, is the baby Jewish or not? So, just for example, last uh, uh, last summer, Meirav Michaeli, a uh, member of the Israeli government, uh, she and her partner came back from America with a baby, uh, and she only announced it afterwards. And she didn't say any details. She didn't say the uh, the surrogate was uh, was Jewish. I think it's probably safe to assume that the surrogate was not Jewish. So she's raising this uh, this kid as her own. If you say that the birth mother is the real mother then if that birth mother, if this, this target was not Jewish, then this kid is not Jewish. In which case, maybe 
if it were a couple who were following Bacha, then they would have to bring the do Giyur Lechumra, convert the kid just in case. Anyway, this is a debate. The majority opinion among the poskim who address this issue now, and we don't know what it will be in another generation, but right now the majority opinion is that the woman who gives birth is the real mom, not the woman uh, uh, who is the uh, genetic mom, whose egg it was. But there are opinions the other way, and for all we know, in another generation it will, it will reverse. And you really don't want to have a situation in which there's somebody who thinks they're Jewish, they're only Jewish according to some opinions and not others. We really want to avoid that. So, what kind of precedent do we have for this? So, some people turn to Targum Yonatan. It's not Unkosetsky. We discussed this a little bit a number of sessions ago with the scholars called Targum Pseudo Jonathan. It's a type of midrash that elaborates in Aramaic on the Psukim. Targum Yonatan, where it says, and then Leah gave birth to Dina, Targum Yonatan says that Leah didn't want to have uh, more than half of tribes meaning she already had six uh, sons. Uh, so she, um, she prayed while she and her, her sister Rachel were both pregnant. She prayed for Rachel to have a boy and for her not to have, for her, Leah, to not have a boy. And there's different versions in the version then God um, miraculously changed the, the genders of, of the babies. But in the case, in the version in here, Targum Yonatan, it's the fetuses, the embryos, whatever, were swapped, were miraculously swapped between Rachel, who had been carrying a girl, and Leo, who had been carrying a boy. And that's why Yosef became Rachel's son, and Dina became Leah's uh, daughter. And so this is a kind of midrash. And some rabbis, including, for example, here in source number two, Rachel Yisraeli, uh, wrote that, well, you see, so we see from this that uh, the, the real mother, the mother for all purposes, is the one who gives birth. Meaning, the Torah says that Leah gave birth to Dina, and for all purposes, Dina was Leah's daughter. Um, the Torah says that Rachel gave birth to, to Yosef, and for all purposes, Yosef is, uh, is uh, Leah, sorry, Rachel was Yosef's mom. So, does this prove anything? Actually, no, it doesn't prove anything. Uh, a, there are a bunch of articles on the subject. This is one of the shorter ones. Here in source number three, by Rabbi Yeshua Pfeffer, which is based on an article by Rotsia Reisman, um, that you could say, no, that's not a proof. Why is this not a proof? Uh, really, this uh, uh, he suggests that it makes more sense for the genetic mom to be considered uh, the real mom. And uh, what happened with Yosef and Dina was a miracle. You don't bring a proof from, uh, from miracles. Um, alternatively, you could say, wait a minute, there's a different draft that says that, the quote by Rashi, that uh, Shimon married Dina, who didn't have anybody to, uh, to marry her after she was raped by, uh, by the evil Shechem. Uh, so Shimon married his, uh, his sister Dina, according to Medish quote by Rashi. So Moshe of Zikin, in one of the commentaries of Tosfo, asks, excuse me, even for B'nai Noach, even before the, the Torah was given, uh, there's such a thing as a riot, as a prohibited relations. So uh, a maternal sister is prohibited even for non-Jews. So, so Moshe came answers, ah, because the principal pregnancy of Dina took place in Rachel's womb. So for certain purposes, Shimon and Dina were not full siblings. And that's how Shimon was able, according to a different matter, to marry Dina. 
to pull this together by Michael Broy uh, from uh, uh, Emory University's uh, law school uh, points out in one of his many articles about uh, about law, comparative Jewish and uh, American law. This article called "The Establishment of Maternity and Paternity in Jewish and American Law." He quotes his Targum Yonatan, and he says, "Actually, this it suffers from a fatal flaw. It's medrash, therefore, it, you can't bring it as a proof for something that's halacha because it's not a halachic text in the first place. And there are two other problems, namely that Talmud tells the story in a form that does not mention surrogacy, does not is not relevant for surrogacy. Namely, it was just miraculous. Uh, God, God uh, changed." Uh, change the gender of the baby, but not switch the babies. And furthermore, the text appears for the first time in Targumianatan, his authorship is unknown, and we don't like to quote it for halakha purposes. Uh, if anybody's interested in the subject, I recommend an article that's more than 30 pages long on this subject, and it's by none other than Rabbi Dr. E. Uh, Reichen. We've seen him uh, a couple weeks ago when we talked about the... Uh, uh, I think he was the one who mentioned about the eight-month, uh, the belief about the eight-month uh, baby. No, no, he was, sorry, he was the one with the uh, uh, getting pregnant in the bathtub. In any case, he's one of the rabbi doctors who has written a bunch of articles comparing uh, understandings of myths in, in Jewish history and general history. And this article in the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, that's Yeshua University's medical school, there, by their synagogue, called as an article called Medrash Miracles in Motherhood, the Birth of Dina and the Definition of Maternity, subtitled Sarach Iyun Ledina, which is a little play on words because usually the phrase means it needs further investigation for Dina with an off at the end, the Jewish law, but here it means Dina with, an, with a hey at the end. What was the status of, uh, of Dina? Anyway, strange but true. Uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, I will uh, wrap it up now. Uh, and uh, and then I'll go through uh, through the chat. I'm going to end the, the recording now. Sorry about the uh, technical problems we had before. I hope that that will not uh, repeat itself. And uh, and I hope to see everybody here uh, next week for uh, and the week after for our last two sessions. Okay, recording stop. Let's go through the chat. Uh,